Today, you'll hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. We're eager to showcase their expertise and provide a platform for their views, but they may not always reflect or align with the views of the positive effect or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Pause. We challenge the status quo and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. What have you learned about yourself working with peer researchers? <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, humility. <laughs> Definitely humility. <laughs> I, I think that's probably the number one thing. And just to look at our assumptions, especially when we think we're doing a quote-unquote good job. Today on podcast is part two of a series exploring the role of peer research associates, or PRAs, as they're commonly referred to. And if you haven't had the chance to listen to part one, I highly recommend to listen. I had a great conversation with two highly respected peer researchers, Tim and Lynn. It's a good one. In my ongoing journey to get input on peer research from a variety of points of view, I reached out to two people whose work and way of working I really admire. They have an intimate knowledge of working with peer researchers and care deeply about the people they employ and the employment experiences they have. Lori Chambers and Zach Marshall are both accomplished social workers, social justice advocates, and community-engaged researchers. Welcome to podcast, both of you. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. So happy to be here. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Let's just dive right in. So in my conversation with Tim and Lynn, two very well-respected peer researchers, um, I opened with a question around motivation. Like, why do they do the work that they do? So I want to put that same sort of question out to both of you. Lori, what draws you to the community-engaged research work that you do? Um, I got into this work almost by accident. I got into this work as a volunteer at an aid service organization. And the executive director at the time, Ruth Ann Tucker, invited me to be part of a project, which was actually the precursor of Positive Spaces, Healthy Places. And she in, in introduced me to a way of doing research that was so, it was very much grounded in community wisdom. And that's the way she phrased it. And that the work that we do, and it's probably why I also went into social work, the work that we do as social workers should be grounded in community wisdom. There's a history of it not being. But so I approach research like I approach social work. It's a form of community practice, and more so, it's a form of working my way out of the business, which I've always pursued with both social work and community-based research. What do you mean by working your way out of the business? Well, I kind of think about some of the conversations I've been having, and to me, community-based research is shifting from being you know, an academic who maybe leads or co-leads research to be more in an advisory role, or a role where you work in and not even in tandem, you work to elevate the wisdom of the people who you work with. So ideally, I would hope that I move back, meaning, you know, 
I support other people in doing the community-engaged work that they want to do. And they ask me questions and advice as need be, but it's not about me, you know, me getting papers done or whatever. It's about we, which is the community um, people I work with, the organizations I work with, and me facilitating that process. Right. And Zach, so what draws you to the community-engaged research of work that you do? Well, I tried to go back because I sort of thought you might ask us something like this. So I tried to go back and try to figure out when did this start? Kind of like Lori. My first response is I don't really, I guess I would say I don't know how to do it differently, but that's not exactly true. I've been taught many ways of doing research. It's just that I'm really, I would say, partly not interested in doing it differently, but I also don't feel, I feel like I'm refusing now to do research differently. I only want to do research that is in solidarity and in partnership with communities. And often that's communities that I'm a part of one way or another. And even around HIV, I was trying to think like, when did I start getting involved in community-based HIV research? And it's a little bit hard to disentangle because so much of our early work, it was I don't even call it peers. It was all like by and for the community. So it's hard then to disentangle research from that. But it's just, I feel it's so much a part of our roots, even when I first started getting involved in the early 90s. Right. And do you think like the work you're doing now or the work that you do with people living with HIV, do you think you're making a difference? Lori? Ooh, um, that's an interesting question. Um, yes, in some ways and no in others. Where I say yes is I've noticed the projects that I'm on aren't necessarily academic ones. They are projects where communities leading, they ask me to advise in some way, and um, how I participate is often varied, but it's not expecting me necessarily to be the leader, even though I do do projects where I might be in collaboration and leadership. Um, so yes, in that way, no in others, because what I'm noticing is people feel this need. I, I'm noticing this um, academicization of community-based research work, and it's partly our fault. I notice a lot of people feeling this need to get a degree, and I ask them why they go, because I'm often silenced or not listened to until I get you know, a master's or PhD. And then they say, look at you, Lori, you did it. And I'm like, oh. But at the same time, I totally see this um, credentialization happening for good. I think more people, you know, more community members should go to school if they want to go to school. But also the challenge, what about people who cannot, should not, or do not want to? Will this um, shut them out of doing community-based research in ways in which they can also be leaders in it? Oh, that's interesting. What do you think about the credentialization um, in community-based research, Zach? I think there are so many um, differences depending on sector. So I was thinking about like research in partnership with people who use drugs. I feel like the experience is the lived experience is the most important piece, but there's been such strong advocacy similar to Jeepa Mipa around ensuring that people with lived experience are at the center and in, in leadership roles. I feel like there's a high degree of 
sort of a demand for accountability around that. So I know there there are definitely um, also movements around certificate programs, even say. So even if, if someone isn't necessarily deciding to go to university or college, there are definitely certificate programs also around peer support. So yeah, I guess I, I, I struggle with it a little bit, kind of what you're, you're saying as well, Laurie. I do struggle with this a little bit because what are we saying that, oh, there, there needs to be this group of people who don't have, you know what I mean? This university education that are quote unquote peers. And it gets into the whole thing about what is a peer. And I know we've also heard from people with lived experience, including people living with HIV, who find that as they get more and more experience, um, they may be moving further away from their original um, circumstances and also from the concept of who researchers are trying to reach. So it, it can be distancing. I think sometimes the whole professionalization or increased training or just increased experience period can be distancing. Right. Well, talk to me a bit about your perspectives on the peer researcher role itself. Like, what is their main function and what is the, what is the value that they add to the project? Lori? It's an interesting question because, yeah, it goes back to what Zach says. Um, um, increasingly, what is a peer? Increasingly, the work that I am doing is work with, for, and, and by people who identify as ACB, living with or impacted by HIV. And as such, in some senses, I am a peer. In other senses, I am not. As a person who identifies as Black or of African descent, and also a person, though, who also identifies as HIV negative. However, what I sense peer is, peer researcher is, is a person who has a particular, has multiple ways of knowing, one of which is experiential or work-oriented. And that experiential knowledge is something that cannot be read in a book or cannot be obtained in, in a way that academic knowledge can be. But I also see peer researchers a way of being with research. And what I mean by that is you're engaging in research that has a tangible impact on the communities in which you identify with. And that's where this notion of peer shifts for me, because a lot of projects that I do impact Black communities, both living with and impacted or racialized women. So I'm really mindful that that lens of peerhood sometimes shapes the projects that I choose, the methods that I use, and even the people I work with. So I feel, I know that's a circular answer. You know me, I talk in circles. <laughs> I think it's a circular answer in saying it's, it's really dependent on context and how you define experiential knowledge. Okay. So what is the value that peer researchers add to a project then? I think both the experiential insights and the passion to apply those, the learning from research with and for their communities. And also to, to a representative aspect where people feel that they can look at research and say, hey, this is research done by people who not only have lived experience, but who want to give back the wisdom back to my community. I think that's really important for people to be able to see that the members of the team 
are representative of the communities with which the research is intended. Right. And would you agree with that, Zach? I think for me, in a way, it depends on the project. So let's just say there's a community that's worked together for a long time and uh, they've identified, oh, we want to do some research about blank. We'll just say we've been talking about food security, right? Food security. And so then that group, like even if a geographically specific group or an experiential specific group would maybe partner with a researcher. So in that case, it's almost like, what does the researcher bring, this university researcher or this academic researcher bring, as opposed to what does the peer bring? I mean, to me, the quote unquote peer, and I say that because I know a lot of people do not like the word peer (laughs) at all. And we've been trying to instead use words like community researcher, community scholar. But in any case, I I don't want to digress too far into that. But it's also hard to keep saying peer when I've heard so many times that people don't like it. You know, so in the context of a project where you have community members who are or a community that is partnering with a researcher, it's more about what do you want that academic researcher to bring? And even individual peers, I think, might bring specific skill sets. You know what I mean? Might say, oh, I want to do this or I want to get involved in data collection, data analysis, all the different types of roles envisioning the project, designing the data collection tools. There's so many pieces, but to me, it's more about the accountability and the continuous sort of checkpoints that you can have where you can go back and say, okay, so we did this. We talked about doing this. Now we did this part of it. And what, what, what should we do now? Like it's more of a partnership. It's not just like, oh, we hired these community members and they have a job. You know what I mean? It's not that in my mind anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Fair enough. So so before you begin a project with peer researchers, like what are some of the key elements you need to consider? How about you, Laurie? Um, I was hoping you'd ask Zach first because I struggle with that. Then maybe Zach can answer it better. Um, is It assumes that it's a job or it's a kind of, you know, here are the qualifications that you need to check Fox because you need to be to be a good peer researcher. But I usually don't approach it that way. It's basically there'll be a group of us having this conversation or having this, we're talking about this idea and we're thinking, oh, we should do that as a research project. Now, one of those persons could be living with HIV. Another of those persons could be identify as as a racialized woman or another community impacted by HIV. And another one of those people could be an academic. And sometimes it's not easy to separate them. Sometimes the academic is also a person living with HIV. Sometimes a racialized person is the academic, so on and so forth. So, forth. so it's not this checkbox thing. It's we all are having this conversation, having this intellectual puzzle, as I sometimes say, that we all share and we kind of want to, to untrouble it. So we work together collaboratively. I haven't approached that research in that way since I've left OHTN because... The OHTN? Oh, sorry, the Ontario HIV Treatment Network. When I was in a role where I was an employee, yes, I approached it that way when I was an employee of a community-based organization. But since then, it's more of this collaboration amongst people who have a shared, a common vision of how to gather and share knowledge and our identities are part of that um, 
troubling and desire to see, to gather and share knowledge. So, but are there then constraints? I mean, you're constrained by an organization or, or a university, let's say, over how you work? Um, the constraints happen when we institutionalize research. So, for instance, we might be having this conversation. Oh, yeah, we should do a research study. Oh, then the academic says, oh, well, we have to write a paper because I'm on the tenure track and I need those papers written. And then the person who works in community organization go, well, I need to make sure that it fits within my job criteria because I can, I can work. The, you know, or we do it after work if I'm not being part of that, which is additional job for me, a multiple hat, as it will. And then the person with lived experience, and this they could all be shared, say, well, you know what? I want to make sure that the JIPA MEPA practices are installed. Yeah, it's nice we're having this conversation, but we have to ensure this goes back to the community. And then we notice the tensions where, well, does you publishing this paper fit GIFA MEPA? Does the community organization mind if the academic organization holds the funds? So what happens is once those nice, great conversations, those generative conversations happen, and, you know, we put the, I know, the, the we have to actually do the research once the institutionalization aspect happens or what are the requirements that need to be fulfilled for this to be an academic research project or a community organization-led project, that's where the tensions lie. Right. So, Zach, for you, I mean, is that, is that a reality? I mean, you're based in the university. Is that a reality for you that some of these constraints come into play when producing your research? They, they definitely do around hiring. Sometimes... For example, I'm in a situation where recently they changed the guidelines of who counts as a research assistant at my university. And so the only people that can be hired currently as research assistants are full-time students, I think it is. It's either, and sometimes it's master's or PhD students specifically. So then we have some funding and within our funding call, like within our proposal, we are hiring community members and peers specifically. And now peers could be people who are grad students, but we want to have more room. We want to be able to be more inclusive. I've had to go back um, now a couple of times to HR to ask what we can do about this. But this, I think, from an institutional perspective, was uh, seemed like a quote-unquote easy decision and was meant to encourage uh, faculty members to hire students from specifically from my institution, right? And so it, it, it's just, it's led to a lot of questions and I've had to go back a, a few times. I've had to go talk to other faculty that do community-based research to ask them, how are they handling this? And it wasn't um, really publicly announced either. So I just sort of found out by happenstance when I went to say, I want to post this job um, and I want it to be a community member that's hired, not a student. Definitely there are constraints and then this requires us to be creative. I know sometimes people will be able to, you know, work with the community-based organization and flow some of the funds there so we can pay community members through community-based organizations. So sometimes we do, we have to be creative or is it then someone is getting an honoraria instead of being an employee? 
but then what are the ramifications of that? And that that comes around to some of my own deep, deep interest in the labor practices that we have in the field of community-based research. And, and some of those things we maybe we're thinking, oh, well, the good thing is the person will still get the money, you know what I mean? Because, but they'll get it in the form of a stipend or honoraria, but that's not the same thing, right? As being an employee and, and the potential benefits that come with that. There's, there's a lot to sort of sort through there. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're going to get into that. Sorry, go ahead, Lori. I was just going to add to Zach's point because the flip side of that is the multiple hats um, tension where you have people who are um, employed in, in a service or a community health organization who want to engage in research and they have a salary. So that um, facilitates the one end of the challenge of the precarious labor of um, peer work. But the challenge of that is they have multiple hats. Um, I remember one time I'm on a project and everybody wanted to participate, but they're going, Lori, I'm on so many projects. I'm tired. And I said, okay, how can I make this easier for you? So we did cabs less often, but then it made me feel that people are not as engaged in the project. So it's, it's less participatory in some sense, but to, we had to do so for their own labor to make sure that they didn't feel overwhelmed by their participation. But at the same time, it could be argued that it has less community engagement because of that. So there's also the tension of overworking people who want to participate in projects, particularly if they're part of a community that is underrepresented in research too. Right, right, right. So what's the one piece of advice you'd give to a new researcher who is looking to work with peer researchers? Zach. Get good advice. <laughs> Talk to people in advance, you know, as you're planning, especially if you're applying for funding before you submit your budget, because you really need a budget that's going to have enough room to really engage with community members. So not just like blank dollars per hour for, say, a peer researcher, but you need, like Lori was just talking about, you need a community advisory board, then you need stipends for people, then you need food, you need money for a condensed training period of time to really help people, whether it's about training or if people are already experienced, it might be more about team building. If you get the funding, then you need time to work on data collection tools. So you need to really build in the funds. If you're working with um, Indigenous communities, you may need funds for knowledge keepers or to work with indigenous elders from specific communities. So there's a lot there um, that needs to be thought about in terms of space, technology and resources that needs to be in the budget. Because otherwise, if you apply and you've just got seven hours a week for a peer researcher, you know, for six months, like from my perspective, this is not going to do it. So I think talking with other people who've done it before makes such a difference because you could say, oh, would you mind sharing your budget or can you tell me how you went about developing your budget and and talk to obviously like peers themselves can do, do some really good consultation before you jump into it. Right. I've been thinking like how, like how do you learn as a student? Like how are you learning about um, peer research? Is that something that you just have to dive in and do and, and, and poke around or is it something that they teach? I think, I know there's some really good people 
who are engaging students in social work anyway, who are engaging students at early stages. For instance, when I was a master's student, David Brennan engaged me on his project um, um, in terms of recruiting during Pride. And one of the reasons he did so is he felt that my experience and expertise would help, but also I learned how to recruit in a particular way that I, for, for, for a survey, which I never knew before. So it's a little bit of a mix of the student gaining some skills in terms of, you know, some social work um, schools I've taught it. I've taught CBR, but CBR is very much, you got to get into it. You got to learn um, through doing the work and, and also making mistakes. I've made mistakes where I've been, you know, years later, people say, you know, that research project you were on when you were a BSW lawyer, where's the paper? Or where's the community report? I'm like, uh, uh. <laughs> so I think that it's really important for students to get some, you know, learning. It could be a course, it could be a workshop, but the real learning is, is the doing. And find a good mentor. I've been lucky in that. And I think students, would, if they really want to engage in this, find someone who really inspires you and learn from them. Um, often good community-based researchers are good mentors because right. basically they want to share knowledge and share how, what they do and ensure that community-based research is sustained. Okay. So, Zach, what have you learned about yourself uh, working with peer researchers? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, humility? <laughs> Definitely humility. <laughs> um yeah, I, I think that's probably the number one thing. And just to look at our assumptions, especially when we think we're doing a quote unquote good job. Because I, I so remember the time when I was so happy that we were able to hire someone full time for a research coordinator position. And I found out later that the person still didn't have health benefits and had lost access to their prescriptions uh, being covered from before. And so then they're oh. paying a huge amount for their prescriptions. You know, they didn't tell us and I didn't know. And so it was just, this went on for quite some time until I overheard something in a conversation. I was sort of like, what, what do you mean? Like you're having to pay $400 a month for prescriptions, you know? So I thought, oh my gosh, here, oh, good for you, Zach. You know, like here you thought like, congratulations, you thought you're doing this great thing. And actually it ended up being a burden for the person. And then, so then, so then we had to do some additional advocacy. In that case, it was through um, a health institution um, just to address this. You know what I mean? Because you can just be too far removed, you know what I mean, from the person's experience. And they might not want to get into it with you. They might not want to tell you and they have a right to, people have a right to privacy. But on the other hand, if you don't ask, you won't know. So I think instead we should start to have like questions, you know, that we are having as part of like when we're hiring people, like what are the benefits, but what are potentially the costs of taking different approaches? And that's why I think the way we hire people, the way we engage with people, it needs to be flexible and needs to best relate to their experience and what their goals are. You know what I mean? Because some people don't want full-time employment. Yeah. They're looking for something different. And so I think we need to be able to have the mindset to be able to have these conversations and to be very clear with people when we are asking them why we're asking them this. So 
Yeah, you can never really get too comfortable with CBR. (laughs) (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) True. So, ask you the same question, Laurie. So, what have you learned about yourself working with peer researchers? Humility is a huge thing. And also, I guess the first thing that came to my mind is, and I'll explain it, checking your privilege. I think he came up in Zach's answer. And in mine, I remember the first, it was a housing study. people who experienced housing precarity, precariousness, and I'm assuming they're easy to reach. That was naive of me. And assuming that the person I talked to last week would have the same number as they had before. No. And papers is another way, like where, you know, oh, people might be really happy to be on a paper, but when they see all the affiliations that some people have, and then they have an affiliation as community member, that can also be one that um, demeans their role. And what I mean by that is it creates this hierarchy of knowledge that can be problematic in, in, in publications, but more so that they're seen as different. So sometimes I say, why can't we none of us put our affiliation? Why can't we just put our names? And, and then that causes tensions as well. So I think it's really important to have those conversations out in the open before and actually talk about, you know what, when we're in, we're doing a research project that um, is affiliated with an academic setting, these are some of the tensions. CBR should not be doing harm, but it often can do it harm if we don't think about its practices and the institutions that construct those practices. So let's let's listen to what Deborah has to say here. I just want to get your take on a couple of the issues she raises. Hi, my name is Deborah, and I'm here in Edmonton, Alberta. I've been a peer researcher for the Alberta Stigma Index for two years. I was diagnosed with HIV 30 years ago and have been a participant in many research projects over the years. I got involved in doing peer research because I believe really strongly that the greater involvement and meaningful engagement of people living with HIV, particularly in research, is extremely important. So when I was given the opportunity to be involved with the stigma index, I leapt at the chance. I'm hoping that over time, I'll be able to be more involved in the coordination of research the uh, analysis of the data and disseminating research so that communities can act on the knowledge that has been gained. I feel strongly that it's important that research has an end goal of changing society and improving the lives of people living with HIV. Thank you. So Deborah mentions, well, many things, but, but her strong belief in the JIPA-MEPA principle drew her to the role and that she's hoping to advance and do more, right? That her role will grow. I mean, she's certainly not alone. I hear this all the time. We all do. So how could research teams better support this kind of engagement and growth, do you think, uh, Zach? Well, I think um, the way I've seen it happen best, I'd say, is as people are gaining experience, I think there needs to be a model where, and, and this is echoed in harm reduction work, actually, where people can initially start, if they have no experience, you know, they can start with some elements of the work and then start to get more involved and gain experience. I think community-based research is really an apprenticeship type of model for everyone involved, 
whether it's community members or academics. And so this apprenticeship way then means that we're learning how to do it, but we're also learning from each other. That way we also are learning to hold each other accountable uh, because that's another piece of it. It's not just learning, say, how to recruit people or how to administer a survey, but it's also how to hold each other accountable and to be responsible together. So there's a number of skill sets. So I do see it as possible and I've seen it happen that people can advance. I think for me, one of the constraints is actually the budgets. Every time we're doing this, we're going to uh, provincial funders, you know, grant funding, federal funding. They're super competitive. They're all time limited. So these are not permanent positions. And so it just it, it definitely contributes to the precarity, but also instability of it. It's just so, it's so unexpected. We don't know ourselves whether or not we'll be able to get funding and then how much we'll be able to pay someone and all of that. So that right. just makes it a little bit harder. It's, it's more a function of where the money comes from to do this type of work. I mean, there seems to me like you talk about advancement in the role, right? I mean, there seems to be such a disconnect between the principle of JIPA and MIPA, like in theory, and its implementation. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, Lori. Um, I agree. Um, the whole point of Jeep and MEPA is nothing, you know, for us without us and, and including research. And, you know, when you look at the foundations of it, it's in all, all aspects of the response, including all aspects of research. And it kind of resonated with how Deborah said she's doing one part, but she's not doing the part like analysis and dissemination. So I do agree with the Zach that apprenticeship is really important. Where I think also we have to look at is the structures that we've created or the structures in which it's almost like the structure is here. And this structure is very neoliberal, <laughs> very unconstrained. And then we drop CBR into it. And so we don't have the funding because the structure didn't anticipate that a person would want to do this full time at a sustainable wage for years. And we have this constraint. So I, I, I think if we don't change the structure, if we don't change the structure of research and of knowledge gathering in which CBR has been plucked into, I think we're always going to have these tensions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also with models. I know that you guys at Positive Effects have looked at different dissemination models that ground um, the knowing practices from the community members. And I'm looking at that too, like home knowledges. How can home knowledges from communities of African descent be integrated in knowledge gathering and sharing? Once again, if we don't change the structures of research and how we conduct research, we need PhDs in certain ways. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. So is it time then for a PRA co-op, union, national association? Is it time? I mean, is the model broken? Is it time to rebuild? And I'll, I'll put that question to you, Zach. Well, I'm definitely super excited in alternative labor practices, so-called alternatives. So whether that's unions, clubs, social enterprises, ways for people who are working as peers to be able to leverage their experience together 
in ways that would be less isolating. Cause right now it's very like each individual kind of like each one for themselves. We, we've had a lot of feedback over the years from people saying that they feel isolated or they feel that the employers are not accountable or they just, they heard about someone on their team got fired and there's with no notice, you know, and they don't know why, or they didn't agree then it, and it has had a huge impact on that person. So, and we also have heard a lot about people feeling like the work they do is very emotionally engaging, but also taxing and that there's not enough supports in place. We've had a lot of feedback about what's wrong with the current model. I definitely think that some collective responses would be great. And I don't think it necessarily has to be all peers. You know what I mean? All peers that start, uh, say, a worker co-op. It it could be done more as like a solidarity tool that is actually bringing together like-minded people. Because one of the things I've been hearing about co-ops is that they're actually really difficult to administer. And it takes a lot of energy in and of itself. Now, I'm not saying that peers couldn't do that. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just saying, what roles do people want to have? And how can we best like match those to what people are able to do so that we have some people that like to do things that like write bylaws and deal with payroll and you know what I mean, deal with all of the government registration of a cooperative, which they're all provincial. There's all these legal aspects to it, blah, blah, blah. So let's make sure that the people that are doing that are the people that want to be doing that and that people are taking on roles that hopefully they feel excited about. The other thing for me, though, is it still doesn't get around the problem of where do we get the money, you know, because part of me is like, oh, could we just like go around the academic researchers and have it be community driven research period? But then I still have the question of, well, then where does the money come from? Because a lot of the initiatives that go to community organizations they don't want to fund research. <laughs> so it's like they want to, they'll maybe fund evaluation, which could be a form of research, but they don't want to fund research. And they're really adamant about that, right? At the municipal level or, you know, at the provincial level. So I totally heard what you were saying, Lori. I guess it's also saying, okay, if we're going to do it that way, we probably also need to advocate about where the funding is going to come from. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's my biggest tension. Um, I do agree that there's been a lot of great work in terms of addressing how JIPA, MIPA is not fully integrated in community-based research. And we've we've seen a lot of people who've done great work. Adrian Gupta's one. Zach, you're another. Um, Sarah um, Flicker. Sarah Flicker. There's like a whole name of people that we could credit. But the biggest challenge is, okay, we've identified it. How do we implement it? And Zach has pointed out the money aspect is a big thing. And also to the which forms of skills are valued still holds on to a traditional model. And when I say traditional, is the, the model of research that's academics started and then put imposed upon communities rather than the communities imposing their ways of knowing and their knowing practices. And if CBR's roots need to be, we need to uplift the plant of CBR and, and put it in a different foundation. Right. When I was speaking to, to Tim and Lynn about this very topic, Tim spoke about wanting to connect with other peers across the country, as you were mentioning, Zach, you know, maybe an association or a union or something like that, and determining sort of a common dollar value for certain tasks that they do, that kind of thing. But 
Lynn was more more concerned it would take away like it, the professionalizing the role would then take away from the, uh, the the peer relationships and would create a distance with community. No peers aren't aligned with one way of thinking or the other either. I mean, it's complex for sure. But it's true. Well, for some people, a change would make them personally vulnerable, right? We're kind of talking about the difference between individual people's circumstances and then kind of systems change. People that are where the current system might be working okay for them, they might say, you know, let's not shake this up. It's it's going okay. Like I'm doing okay with this. I've also heard at the event that you organized, James, with Francisco in Halifax, there I was I was so fascinated by some of the responses. I mean, people were saying, well, also we're worried. What if the academic researchers don't like this idea? What if they don't support it? What if they basically say, no, we're going to hire someone else. We're not going to go with unionized workers. We're going to go with other people that we can just hire independently. That's not going to be you know, such a quote unquote hassle and that we won't have to pay people at these rates. So it became clear to me there that I was like, oh, right. We also have to get buy-in. <laughs> we have to have a, a consultation, just kind of cooperative process to even figure out how we're going to do this and maybe get a few people that do hire a lot of peer researchers kind of like to get on board with it because it will require sort of a, a certain amount of community I don't want to say pressure, but more like expectations, an expectation that this is now how we do this. And this is sort of like, even if we were to say specifically within HIV CBR, that this is how we want to proceed from now going forward. You know, this is our sort of our best option. When I heard you guys talking about this, one thing that um, I was grappling with is the commodification of it of certain skill sets. And it kind of brings me back to how the consultancy model kind of started about with CBR, where certain people felt that the whole notion was broken and said, I'll be a consultant. You know, people want to use me. I'll give, I'll be a consultant. You have to pay me these fees. And then certain people were super consultants. You know, they did quite well. And other people struggled because some people were really good at commodifying their skills and other people were challenged by it. And it, and it still went back to what skills are valued in the current marketplace. And I use that language. I know it sounds crass, but that's what seems to could be happening. Granted, a union and a union model, you hope to strive towards that, but drive against that. But there's still this sense of commodification of skills, which skills will have currency. Do we look at everybody's skill set the same? What happens if someone can't, you know, like I know some people who are really, really good at recruitment. What happens if they always get hired? Do we, you know, there's all these different there's also the, the commodification of identity. Which, yes. Right. Oh, my God. Yes. And and that also worries me, too, um, in the sense that so people will have to, you know, be an influencer in a sense. And to be an influencer, you have to position yourself in a certain way to be hired. And what are the tensions of that for a person who does not want to position themselves in that way? Do they jeopardize their, you know, their their ability to work in, in this new field? But Lori, can I ask you a question? James, am I asking too many questions? No, no. What is that question? Well, I was just curious because I was thinking right now, at least if it's jobs, 
all the jobs have a certain amount of specific roles, right? I guess I was thinking that if if, if people were working within a cooperative model, then that group basically then contracts with the researchers or the universities, right? And then they could have like multiple contracts. And so then people could use their current skill sets, but also hopefully have opportunities to build if they want to. But does it seem, I mean, maybe you're totally right. Maybe it's, maybe it is the consultancy model. Is there a better way? I'm like, oh my God, is there, I would love, I would love to know, like, cause we're still thinking about this so much, right? We're trying to figure it out. And, and remember, I'm, I'm also thinking about when I'm mentioning that the model might have challenges, I'm thinking about it as a, a person of African descent who's worked with indigenous researchers as well. And we all th- also think the model is problematic. Yes. <laughs> because it's a Western pr- approach to collaborative work that hasn't always worked for us. Mm. And then there's a risk of tokenization. And I, can, I have already seen this happening where certain people's identities are, of, are hot commodities in this particular marketplace and they will get the work in particular ways. I don't mean to be crass, but there's always a challenge when doing a model where it's commodification of people's skills. I, I do think there's promise in the models act and I don't want to discount it at all but I think you'll one thing we'll really have to think about is what happens is if people have different skills is it a skills building exercise where anybody who wants to recruit can recruit rather than the person who's best at recruiting does the Mm. recruitment do you get what I mean or people who have specialized skills they teach it to others but if that specialized skill is a home knowledge or a local Mm. knowledge or an indigenous knowledge how do we deal with Mm -hmm. that because that's where tokenism happens what about indigenous knowers Mm -hmm. how will that model recognize that they can't commodify their knowledge in the same way. They can't. It's community knowledge. It's grounded in their home ways of knowing. There's a tension in that. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Lori. No problem. And I think it's like a, an off podcast conversation. Sorry, I completely um, distracted. I was listening. I, 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 I forgot I was hosting a show. Yeah, uh, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting debate. It sure is. I mean, there's lots there. That's another show. Okay, so let's change gears a second here. So um, let's hear from Valerie, speaking of Indigenous people, um, who speaks about why she became a peer researcher and her goal to bring research home. Hello, my name is Valerie, and I'm living in what you call Vancouver, but is actually the unceded ancestral traditional territories of the Coast Salish people. And I honour the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish. I have been doing peer research work since about 2011. And the reason that I got into peer research work was because the research that was being done here was not respectful. It was not taking into account the feelings of us taking this research questions. And a lot of the words they used were very stigmatizing or degrading or, or it was like they didn't care. And we never saw them again after we did the research. I was asked to be involved in a research study, and I saw that the questions were quite 
disrespectful. So I worked with them and said, I cannot take this to my community. I still live there. So I would change the words from drug user. Or how often do you abuse drugs? These are just really not nice words to be sharing or talking or about one another. And then as I stayed in with research and working on other projects and helping to design them, I noticed that the research that I had been a participant in, I never saw those results. They never came back to community. They were always just driving in, getting whatever they needed and never coming back. So one of my true goals is wanting to bring research home, bring it back to community. My future in peer research well, currently I am a principal investigator. I have developed my own survey questions, working with True Allies, getting funding, but I'm indigenizing my research, going back to my roots, going back to walking on the land with the land and really honoring the teachings that were here before any of us were, weaving that into the Western research ways, but doing it in an Indigenous way. And I see this really starting to evolve, and we're changing our language. And it's a journey that I think is so needed. I can remember that as a peer, we weren't allowed or we weren't invited, maybe is a better word, to car conferences. It was only for the scientists, the researchers. And as we started getting our foot in the door, I would stand up and say, why are you saying mother to child transmission? Why are you blaming the mother? You don't say to me, you know, man to woman transmission. Why are we putting these labels on it? Let's chat first about bringing research results back to the community. I mean, it seems like a no brainer to me, um, but this lack of dissemination, see, well, it seems to happen all the time, but I don't think it's on purpose. I mean, I think researcher priorities shift and move and life gets in the way. Laurie, can you talk to talk to that about why it's important to bring data back to the community and why it doesn't happen? Yeah, I'll do both. It's about accountability and trust, um, what Zach has mentioned. Okay, I see research as a form of appropriation and what I mean, appropriation of knowledge. You ask people questions in order to glean a certain insight that you don't have. And you do so in a way to, ideally, to benefit them. So not giving them back, is, it's not reciprocated. You're basically stealing knowledge and not giving it back in a, in a tangible way. Um, whether it's um, you do an academic paper and you don't present your findings to community, you do analysis and you don't member check it or ask community members what their thoughts are on it or what I see often happens well-intentioned researchers whether in universities community-based organizations they'll do this research with thinking of being within a limited time frame and then they realize it takes longer to do CBR they have a three-year grant they have to do some publications and they also have to be accountable to their own job so they don't build in this giving back in a really meaningful way. 
And so what happens is they're more concerned with doing those papers in the summertime because that's what we're, a lot of us are doing right now. <laughs> so before September comes and we have to start teaching again and like, oh my God, how are we going to have time? And they're not thinking, oh, wait, I have to present <laughs> this work to the community to see what Val said, deficit ideologies. Is the language that I'm using problematic in terms of how I do analyze findings? Is the ways in which I see the world through the lens of somebody else really problematic? Am, am I, you know, imposing my privileged viewpoint on the knowledge? Um, how to disseminate? A lot of people don't read community reports. Are we going to do it through a conversation? Or are we going to do it through a 10-minute presentation with PowerPoint slides? So a lot of the tension is not mobilizing and translating knowledge gathered in a way that's meaningful and fruitful to community and has an aim towards benefit. I work in federal service, too. I'm right now taking leave. One thing we also criticize academic researchers, including myself, is how do we use your research for policymaking? Often it makes great reading in qualitative research or quantitative research journals, but how can we apply your knowledge to actually better our policies and programs? So that's my diatribe. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. So now, like, Valerie is advocating for this and, and quite articulately. And I, Very you know, much so. As a peer researcher, so is that part of, I mean, can peer researchers make this happen? Can they hold researchers to account? Zach? Hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially like people like Valerie who and yourself, James, who have so much experience and who are so well regarded. I begin to see it as there's a big stop sign in the road because there's such a depth of experience especially around peer research in HIV and people living with HIV who are saying, who have done this for so many years now, who are saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You can't get away with it. You can't get away with it and you shouldn't even try. You know, and I know there's another whole group of us that are trying to do things differently, but also it is very helpful to know, hey, someone is going to tell you, like, this is really not all right. I, I do think the issue of returning results to the community can mean a lot of different things. Part of me is like, well, if the research comes from the community in the first place, hopefully it doesn't have too far to travel. You know what I mean? Like if you're actually doing research in partnership with communities, right? Like that's the ideal, right? But I know with Trans Priorities Project, like it's been such good learning for our team even though many of us are from the communities that we worked with, we have really struggled with data analysis because the project is really, as Laurie said, off the side of the desk. It's definitely a labor of love at this point. And we did work with someone early on um, to help us on data analysis and it didn't work for us. The process didn't work. So we went and we've completely re-engaged in data analysis in a much more collaborative way with our team, but it took us probably another two years. So here we are now finally feeling comfortable with um, the work that we've done and wanting to share it with people. But you also start to feel like, what will it be like now when we go back four years later, you know, to people and say, we've got our results, you know, like it, it just... 
what we learned from that process was actually so different from what we originally wanted and thought we would learn and tried to explore. And so I think it's really changed us as a group of people. It's changed us as a group of community-based researchers. Uh, but also, yeah, now we're trying to figure out how do we actually report back to some of the people we talked to, you know, a few years ago now. Like I said, some of this, I think we feel like, why did it take so long? But there's a group from our team that met every one to two weeks for over a year, you know, again, and got a stipend of, you know, $1,400 each. So like I said, it's, it's not nothing that people got, but it's also like they put in a lot, a lot, a lot of energy and time and commitment. And it's not always so simple. You know what I mean? It probably looks simple if you're like, oh, you do this, you do this and you do this. And then, but being CBR, it's not simple. I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that, yeah. Zach. You you are right. I don't think it is that simple, but there are different ways in which you can share with community, even if it's just the participants. And that sharing actually shows you're accountable. For instance, I, I'm a firm believer in member checking. Yeah. And what I mean by that or is, is going back to the people who gave you knowledge yeah. and saying, you know, these are some of my preliminary insights. Yes. And in terms of accountability, saying it might be take some time before we publish something because of this and this and this and this. Because people talk in the community. And I find that if you do those little things of going back to the community or even showing a continued presence in the community, not what Val says, you gather the data and leave, I think community members will understand that after four years, it took you a while. It's when you, you know, do research with, with one community, and I've seen this happen with the ACB community, do research with one community, you gather knowledge, oh, this is, this is great. I'm going to go into another community piloting that same intervention, but tweaking it a bit. But wait a minute, you didn't talk to the ACB community whose knowledge helped shape how you did this intervention. Shouldn't you? Even if it's just, this is why we're doing it. We want to do a comparison. We're doing another pilot. So it's sometimes as simple as just giving a report back Yeah, in some way. Oh, Lori, I hear you. No, I hear you. I feel like part of me, I would say 100%. On a philosophical level, I absolutely agree with you. But then I just see what the other part of what really happens in terms of people's lives that are on the projects. And when you when you do have a deeply community engaged team, your team members and we ourselves are also impacted by what's going on in our lives, you know? So that's where it just gets, I, I hear you. I just don't know. I just don't know. Part of me is like, what are you supposed to say? Um, we got delayed by a year because there were a number of like, I'm not saying for this project, but we got delayed by a year because there were a number of crises that people had, because guess what? Like, you know, the people on our team are also impacted by structural forms of oppression. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? It, it, but I, I, I don't, I don't know, but I, I agree with you. I do. I'm just trying to figure out how it works in real life. I, yeah. And I do understand. I think we, we agree to disagree because I think I am thinking of something yes. ideal, but I think in the real too is, I think there's a difference between your tension where 
our labor of love takes a long time. I've been in those projects. Um, me and James are on one right now. A yeah. labor of love that takes a long time because different um, responsibilities to other community projects taken away. But there's another thing that I see too is, and I think this is what Val's talking about, is appropriation of knowledge without accountability of where that knowledge is going or engaging in a data gathering exercise, but not telling community where that data is going to be held. Granted, OCAP principles is very much um, integral to Indigenous peoples, you know, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis in Canada. However, I do feel that there has to be some accountability principles in how some researchers gather data, sit on it, or use it in ways that the community doesn't know about and move on. I think, I think what Valerie's talking about is not the thoughtful, contentious issues you deal with as a researcher, but I think what she says has value. So let's hear more from Valerie. So, I mean, Valerie goes on to speak about the sacredness of the data collected and how the knowledge gained is a co-creation. In this research, every once in a while, just sit back. And when you're looking at these graphs, to remember that we are the voices behind those words and that we're the spirit behind your graphs. And when you're writing about the results and when you're presenting it to community, remember, you're actually speaking about me or one of my peers or friends and that we're in community and we are listening to you and we're hearing what you're saying. So just remember, it takes courage for us to share our stories with you, our histories, how we've been treated sharing our blood with you, that this is a gift that we are giving to you as a researcher. And to remember that, that we do this together. And I think we all need to take a step back and really look at ourselves and the work that we do, but to remember how it is to be on the other side of the table. Thank you for letting me share my words today. So, Laurie, can you speak to what Valerie is talking about here? I mean, it's really about the co-creation of knowledge and, and gathering uh, and using personal stories of others. Yeah. Um, one thing I've, I've learned a lot from Valerie um, in terms of the work she's done as a researcher. And one thing she, she reminds me is it's not just all, also a co-creation, it's one where the origins of that creation stem from community. So she, she's spoken about it in other presentations. And Doris Peltier too, it's very much a circular, it has to go back. And it must go back in different ways. I think this goes back to some of the tensions that Zach has talked about. What are ways in which we can give back what is co-created in ways that recognizes that, yeah, research does take a lot of time and sometimes analysis is not quick and it takes, you know, life gets in the way. But I think more so to how can we research be this reciprocal knowledge gathering exercise where people do feel valued in terms of, I just gave this gift, which is the wisdom that I have, 
And I know that this research, which I, I feel will in some way give it back to the community, whether it is in um, knowledge that can be used for programming, or even whether it is in mentorship um, in terms of we might want to do our own research. Can we be mentored in doing that? So how do we figure out various ways in which we can co-create and give back that's meaningful for communities? Right. Do you want to comment on that, Zach? I was really appreciating Valerie's comments about data as a gift. It, it also gets us at this idea that the university researchers don't own this information. It's not ours, right? right. It might be shared with us, but it's not ours. And so um, this this leads me to another piece, which for me is that I'm starting to think differently about data collection and research methods. And that is changing me. The further I get into the shift project, the more I'm having trouble with what I would see as extractive research practices. Right. And so for me, especially around peer research, I think there's such an amazing history and we haven't done a very good job together of documenting that and sharing it together. So I'm personally a a lot more interested in approaches that might be seen as archival, sort of oral histories, like what you're doing, James, within the community and access within the community in ways, obviously, that work for the people who've been involved. And I've seen, say, someone like Vivian Namaste has done um, this type of work. And so I just think should we be leaning more or, and I know other people do this type of work, but it's just been pushing me to think, how do we do this differently in a way that is not so much like we're going to talk to you or we're going to talk together and then we'll have these recordings and then these transcripts. And then right now it's not working for me in terms of how I'm thinking about this. And i really appreciate um, Valerie's words about that. Right. Yeah. I feel people such as Valerie and I, I, I mentioned Valerie and Doris because their work has also informed my approach that I've shifted to. I see myself less as a researcher now as a, more as a storyteller. Um, we use arts-based approaches of narrative, whether with Because She Cares, we're using um, performance and spoken word poetry. And um, we see it less as research and more as knowledge gathering, knowledge sharing. And I see my role less as a researcher and more of a caretaker of people's stories. And it was funny because I remember another podcast, I said that caretaker. And someone said, it's really interesting you use that word because I actually see how you do it. And, and I thought, it's interesting when you shift the language, when you say knowledge mobilization instead of dissemination, if you say knowledge gathering and sharing instead of dissemination again and, and data collection, and especially if you say caretaker versus researcher, how it also shifts your practice and how you might be perceived as a person who is part of a collective caretaking people's stories. Okay, kids. That's fantastic. We're going to leave it there. What a great chat. That was wonderful. I do, I do have to do my five rapid fire questions. These are the same questions that I asked Lynn and Tim. So Lori, I'll start with you. Why me? Okay. <laughs> Zach's better at this. Start with Zach. Oh, God. All right. I'm going to oh, start God. with Zach. <laughs> Gymnastics or track and field? Track and field. 
Okay. <laughs> There's no I'm wrong like answer. Scared. There's no wrong answer. Okay. Truth or dare? Truth. Intelligent or funny? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, please don't make me. I don't know about that one. It feels ableist to say intelligent. Oh. Oh, wow. Snap. Snap. Okay. <laughs> All right. Passenger or driver? Driver. Rich or successful? <laughs> it's so bad that my first reaction, I'm like, oh, don't say that. I'm like, what's the difference? No, 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 that's not true. <laughs> successful. Neither. I- Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Okay, Lori, Lori. Uh, gymnastics or track and field, Lori? I am Jamaican, so track. All right. Truth or dare? Dare. Intelligent or funny? Funny. Passenger or driver? Passenger. <laughs> Rich or successful? Hmm. I will say successful, but I'm, 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 how do you define success? It all depends. Oh, that's that's yeah. in your brain. <laughs> So are you saying successful or rich? Well, today I'm successful in answering your five questions. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, thank you both very, very much. Thanks for coming on the show. That was fantastic. Thanks for having me, James. I really enjoyed talking with Zach. It was awesome. Thanks very much, Lori. That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on Podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email at pausecastforyou at gmail.com. That's the number four and the letter U. Pausecast is produced by The Positive Effect, which is brought to you by ReachNexus at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The Positive Effect is a facts-based lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV and can be visited online at positiveeffect.org. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto.